So what can separate you from the love of God? Uh, most of us know the Bible verse or verses therein. Uh, in the book of Romans, many of us sang those as a song in our youth and church. So we know the answer that nothing can separate us from the love of God. But really, I mean, what can separate us from the love of God? How many strikes do you actually get before God finally says, enough. Our text brings this question to the fore this morning, and it's an interesting one that it marks a pretty major shift in Israel's history. We are seeing here the passing of one stage of how Israel operated to a brand new stage. We are uh, doing away with the time of the judges that is now coming to an end, and we are entering the time of the monarchy, and it's shifting right here in this text. Our very last judge, Samuel, uh, in, in a very real sense, is giving a farewell speech, and his role in Israel will shift dramatically from this point forward as an advisor and a prophet to the king and no longer a judge and ruler in Israel. And one of the most striking things about this speech is that there are three parties under examination, and the one thing that they will all agree on by the end is that it was a grave error and sin to ask for a king in the first place. Uh, it's an interesting way to enter a whole new phase of your history under this kind of dark banner of, by the way, you were wrong to do this, uh, but here we go anyway. And I think that's astounding as well, that even though they all acknowledge God himself along with the people and the prophet that this is wrong, God still gives them a king, and this will be their future. So I want us to see a few things this morning as we look at these verses. I want us to see two righteous leaders, two outright rejections, and one righteous savior. And so first I want us to see two righteous leaders. And you see this in the first 13 verses. Um, and it begins with Samuel discussing you know, their near past. He begins to discuss what has just occurred in the nation. He begins by letting the nation know, you'll, uh, you, you see in the text, what he did uh, for them. He says, you look, I did what you asked. I gave you the king just like you requested. And now this king walks before you. But that fact, the fact that they demanded a king and a king now walks before them, uh, really seems to be a living rejection of Samuel and his ministry. And he's definitely taking it like that. Uh, there's no doubt. You'll notice he says, I have walked before you all these years since my youth. Right after he says, I'm gonna have a king walk before you, he goes, you know, that's actually what I've been doing. Since I was a little kid in this nation, literally, you remember how our book started with, with Samuel being given in service to Eli as just a boy. Well, now he is aged and gray, and he says, you know, I've been walking before you my whole life faithfully. And he wants to double down on that point. And so he brings, if you will, himself into the court. He says, all right, whatever charges you have against me, clearly there's something deficient in what I'm doing. And so if anyone has a charge, let them bring it. Have I, have I taken from anyone? Have I taken any animals, any livestock? Have I taken a bribe and so that I wouldn't see justly? Have I oppressed anyone? He says, there's any charge you can bring, now's the time to bring it. You know, this is the point in the wedding ceremony where they're asked, you know, if there's anyone here that has cause that this man and this woman should not be wedded in holy matrimony, speak now or forever hold your peace. And you'll notice what the people say. 
You've done no wrong. We have no charge to bring against you. You've never taken, you've never oppressed us. You are wholly innocent. And he says, okay, now then witness before God. And they say, we do, we witness. It all seems very formal. And in one sense, uh, we'll see it is. Um, they all agree that, that Samuel has been righteous. And so now having dealt with Samuel and what has just transpired in Israel's history, his service to them these last, you know, ten, uh, you know, 50, 60, 70 years, he then reaches back into the further past and he wants to bring God, if you will, for examination. He says, all right, you say, you say that I'm innocent, even though I'm being replaced. Let's bring God up front and see how he's done all these many years. And you'll notice he then goes into the whole former history of Israel as a nation. He begins in their being uh, sent into Egypt under Jacob, uh, uh, under Jacob and Joseph, and then he ends, uh, or, or, or then he initiates that reality that God delivered them from that nation. So he says, let's consider, verse 7, all the righteous deeds of God that he performed for your fathers. Jacob went to Egypt. Egypt oppressed the nation. And notice what happened. They cried out. And when they cried out, God raised up Moses and Aaron, and he delivered them. And we start to see this, this pattern. He says, they were in trouble. They cried to God. God raised up leadership. And then that leadership would save the people. He says, but there's also another pattern, but they forgot God. And because they forgot God, God gives them over to the enemy. He says, you know, they, they were given over to Sisera and the Philistines, and they were oppressed there for many years. And what happened? They cried out. They acknowledged that they were wrong. And what did God do? God raised up leadership. He raised up men, judges like myself, Samuel says. And those judges delivered from the enemies on every side. And so you really can summarize the whole past history of Israel by God delivering them, by raising up a man of God's own choosing, and then Israel forgetting what God has done. And that doesn't mean they just couldn't remember, but it was like, you know, forget you, God. You know, we, we don't need you. We, we can settle for other gods. And then oppression comes and they cry out. And God in his mercy delivers them by raising up a leader and he saves them time and time and time again. I mean, their whole history is one of them failing and forgetting and then getting in trouble and being oppressed and God hearing and raising up and delivering and saving. In fact, according to Samuel, listen to this language. This is how God showed his righteousness to them. Did you hear that language? God displayed his righteousness to you in this way. Normally, when we hear that language, you know, if you were to hear God is going to display his righteousness, what would you think? I mean, a lot of times I think we would think of, well, you know, God's going to show how holy he is and, you know, break out in judgment on the people, or God's going to reveal, you know, just how terrifying he is. But Samuel says, God shows how righteous he is over and over and over again by raising up saviors to deliver his people. When we think of God displaying it uh, this way, we see that his righteous acts, according to Samuel, are wrapped up in his merciful acts of, acts of salvation for his people. If you want to see how righteous God is, 
It's him clothed in the saving work of these deliverers. I mean, how do you know God is righteous? Look, he, he keeps rescuing us after we forget who he is. And then when we're in trouble and we call out to him, that's how we know God is righteous. I mean, in fact, our New Testament word gospel, the good news that we preach is tied to this very pattern that Samuel is talking about. You know, when you see that word from the Old Testament used, most of the context it's used in, it's when a messenger is sent forth from a battle in a time of war to go tell the people who weren't there, hey, we won, you know, and then everyone has a party, you know, they start to celebrate. So, you know, that all that language that we hear in the New Testament, you know, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news, right? Who bring the gospel. Why do they have beautiful feet? Well, because they were runners, right? They were those who were sent out from the battle place. They would run home and they would let everyone know all is well. The enemy has been defeated. God has delivered us. You know, as we've talked about before, ding dong, you know, the witch is dead. Uh, let the joyous news be spread. The wicked witch is dead. I mean, that is a gospel proclamation. All you little kids know the gospel as well as anyone through that song. Um, and it's helpful for us, I think, as Christians to view our salvation in this light. A lot of times we think of salvation as, you know, uh, God just, you know, cleaning up our invisible souls or God doing, you know, the erasing work of forgiving our sins, which is all true, but we can get so ethereal that we miss really the earthiness of the whole ordeal. When we say we are saved, it's this kind of salvation. You know, we were being oppressed by enemies, all because of our own failures, and God raised up a deliverer to display his righteousness and save us from the enemy. And then he proclaims the good news, right? Jesus Christ is king. Uh, which means all the people who were ruling over us have all been defeated. And now we have a new king in power. Well, we see here these two righteous leaders, but notice there's two outright rejections. And with the full scope of Israel's national life and behavior recounted in this text, what just happened to Samuel and him being rejected is what has always happened to God in the whole history of Israel. So Samuel says, did I do anything wrong to you? That I have now been replaced? And in one sense, he then says, well, let's see how you've treated your God. He's done nothing wrong to you and you continually have rejected him time and time and time again. There's nothing new here. What was new in this particular pattern is that when they were oppressed because they had sinned, because they had rejected God and forgotten his ways, oppression came, they were in trouble. And instead of crying out and letting the Lord raise up a deliverer, what did they do? They said, no, we will have a king. So notice they chose what type of salvation they were going to get. They didn't just confess their fault and cry out for help. They demanded from God the way that he was now required to help them. And it was that they would receive a king. A king shall reign over us. Notice Samuel is displayed as faithful. 
And they repeat his words, you've done nothing wrong, we are witness. God has been displayed as faithful. His whole actions toward them through their entire history has displayed his righteousness time and time again. And yet, instead of calling to him, what do they say? You give us a king. Which is a rejection of both Samuel, their given leader at the moment, and God, the one who has led them thus far. In fact, if you look at the text carefully, they bring the charges completely against themselves. You'll notice that Israel only speaks three times in this text. It's mostly a monologue from Samuel. But in verses 4 and 5 and 19, they speak. And notice each time they speak, their guilt is either made known or at least it's hinted at. You have not exploited us or oppressed us or taken anything from our hand. He is witness against us or he is witness Verse 19, pray for your servants to the Lord your God that we may not die for we have added to all of our sins this evil to ask for ourselves a king. I mean, all three speeches are a condemnation. I mean, God was faithful to save time and time again, but they demanded a savior of their own choosing. I mean, in one sense, this is the life of sin in a nutshell is that every time we sin, every time we choose something other than God, we really are choosing what we believe will save us. You know, what's going to get me out of this jam? What will give me the meaning and identity that I'm longing for? What will give me the provision uh, or the pleasure or the desires that I want? And instead of turning to God and crying out for help, we say, hey, we'll take a king or, you know, you fill in the blank. We choose a savior of our own making, and in so doing, we reject God. We choose empty things that cannot deliver. That's what our text will tell us at the end. Uh, Samuel says to them, don't choose tohu, don't choose empty things, vain things that cannot save you, which is good advice, Christian. Don't be a fixer. You know, if you find yourself in this situation where you have failed God once again, or you're feeling at the bottom of things, uh, don't do what Israel did and say, I know how to fix this. I've got a plan, a remedy, a thing that God, if you just give me this or do this, then all will be well. Do what Israel did originally, which was all they did was confess their need and cry out for help. That we are, are terrible at figuring out what salvation should look like. And that's why we have done it so poorly all of human history. So notice we have these two righteous parties, uh, and then um, we we have these two righteous leaders. We have two outright rejections by the people. And the text concludes with one righteous party. I mean, by the end, you'll notice even Israel has acknowledged that we blew it when we asked for a king but a king they are going to receive. But with the king, God extends to Israel one more or one new opportunity. And as wonderful as that is, I think when you hear the opportunity, it won't engender a ton of confidence. I mean, did you hear it? Samuel says, okay, you've done this thing. You've asked for a king. You're going to get a king, but it's fine. It will go well with you. Here's all you have to do. Verse 14. 
If you'll just fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, if you and the king who reigns over you follow the Lord your God, it will be well. And then he ends his speech with the exact same information. Look at verse 24, only fear the Lord, serve him faithfully with all your heart. Just consider the great things he's done for you. So everything's gonna be fine if you obey and serve and fear and don't rebel. And if you do all of this with all of your heart. But notice there's a, there's a catch. But if that's not the way it goes, if it doesn't happen to fall out that way, here's the repercussions. But if you don't obey the voice of the Lord, verse 15, but you rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. And then again, verse 25, but if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. I mean, so God gives them a king and says, you know, no problem. I'll, if you and the king obey, it's going to go well. But if you and the king don't obey, my hand will be against you and you will be swept away. He even says in verse 20, don't be afraid. Just serve the Lord with all of your heart. I mean, if you were sitting in this point in Israel's history, hearing this particular sermon, and he's just recounted the whole history of Israel before. He says, you know, God delivered you, and then you forgot God, and then God judged you, and then God delivered you, and you forgot God, and he judged you, and then God delivered you. And he says, but okay, here's the deal. Now, if you just obey God's voice, things will be well. I mean, how much confidence do you have as a member of this group? Because it's not even just you singularly, it's all of us together and the king. You know, if the king does well and you do well, then things will go well. But either of those party messes up, you're both going down. I mean, this sounds a whole lot like the blessing and cursing set up at the end of Deuteronomy. Do this and it will go well. Don't do it. It will not go well. And they have just heard that things have not been going so well thus far. And so things had better change. I mean, the only thing that you and I can be sure of thus far, uh, this far in the text is they haven't gotten it right yet. And judging by what we've seen so far in their last request, which was give us a king, it's probably not going to go so well from this moment on. And what makes matters worse is they just complicated the situation by adding this kingly figure. And to confirm his word, you'll notice Samuel gives this sign. He says, look, what I'm saying is true. What you did was wrong. And all of this stuff is going to happen, just like I said. And to prove it, I'm calling down rain during the wheat harvest. Says, Today's the wheat harvest, it's going to rain. And that doesn't mean much to us, but we're talking about, you know, May, June uh, time, time frame in the nation of Israel, not usually a rainy season. It's when you're, you know, collecting uh, the harvest, not when you're hoping and planting for the harvest. And so, uh, you know, it, it, it's an out of the ordinary experience. It shouldn't be happening and rain comes. And it's clearly an ominous sign. It says, because the people feared. And they begged Samuel, pray for us. Don't stop praying for us. Well, built into the sign itself is somewhat, you know, a judgment reality because you don't want rain at this point in the harvest. 
This isn't good for the crop and actually will damage much of it. And so in one sense, there's already a judgment built into the rain, but they're getting the clue that God's saying, I'm serious about everything I just said. So much so it says they feared God and they feared Samuel. And the only thing they could do now is what? Cry out for help. Samuel, don't stop praying for us. Lest the Lord break out against us. They seem to know the problem. And the only solution they have is to cry out for God. And notice we see then God's heart in the midst of all this. Samuel says, you have done all this evil, yet. I mean, that really is the whole story of the Bible. Yeah, you've done this again. And yet here is God still meeting with his people. I mean, tune in here because this is the good news, not just of this text, but of our very existence. I mean, after all of this sin, after doubling down on sin and working on their own way of being saved, God says, I see it. And even though it's real that you've done all this, there's hope. But listen very carefully. Their hope is not in this new chance. There is no way you can come away with that from this text. I mean, one, just read the next few pages and then read all the rest of the pages of the Old Testament after that. They are not going to get it right this time or the time after, or the time after that. The hope is not in another chance. It's not one more at bat that Israel needs or not a couple extra strikes or you know an umpire that changes the rules a smidge. In fact, Samuel doesn't ground their hope at all in them. Did you notice what he says here in verse 22? For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great namesake, because it's, was ple- it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Moreover, as for me, far be it for me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. Notice in verse 22, that is our only hope, people of God, that God will not forsake us because of who he is and for his own sake. Not a fresh start or a new chance. God has staked his whole reputation on saving this people. And that's what should give them hope. He says, this is who I am. This is how I display my righteousness to the world. And therefore I will not fail to save you because my name and reputation depends on it. I mean, their hope is the God who has rescued them time and time before will continue to be that same sort of righteous God time and time again. I mean, they have committed treason in this text. They have said, we want another king, not you. And God says, there's still hope because what I've committed to do for my own namesake, because what I swore, I I am pleased to save you as my people based on my own name and my own reputation. His name and reputation are wrapped up in you. That is your hope. 
His name and reputation are wrapped up in saving you from you. But notice what he says, but if you persist in evil, you and your king will die. And that is exactly what happens, both of these things. God commits for his own name and reputation to continue saving his people, and he puts to death the king of Israel. Behold, the king of the Jews, hanging there even on Golgotha. I mean, the reality is Israel persists in evil, and because of that, God kills their king. And in so doing, he stakes his whole claim on his own name and reputation. God becomes man and dies as king of the Jews. His reputation is so tied to his people that he promises them in this text, I'm never going to forsake you. And so he forsakes his son in order to save you. Because his steadfast love never ceases. His mercy never comes to an end. It is new every morning. And he cannot be faithless to you because he has to be who he is. He is faithful always to his own name and reputation. I mean, this is our God. This is the good shepherd that leads and saves And because of that, we can be sure, Christians, that goodness and mercy will pursue us all the days of our life. What can separate us from the love of God? The psalm tells us, goodness and mercy follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I mean, as we taught on that text in the Psalms, the the way that David frames it, you know, goodness and mercy are in pursuit of you. You know, there you are trying to run away from God's goodness, trying to run away from his mercy, but it's hunting you down. It will not stop until it overtakes you and conquers you. You know, when I was a missionary in Eastern Europe, we were staying at a hotel one day um, and the owner of the hotel owned two pretty large German shepherds. Uh, and while we were out playing Frisbee on the lawn, those two German shepherds decided uh, that they were not friends of mine for whatever reason and began to chase me uh, pretty seriously. And it was clear that uh, they, were, they did not have good intentions. Uh, and so I ran, and I was much younger then. I could still run a little bit. Uh, and, you know, I turned to the right, and there they both were. You know, goodness and mercy were both there. And I turned to the left, and they were still there. And I have, you know, the scar on my backside to prove that they never ceased to follow me until their owner came out and batted them off. And the psalmist says, that's what God's pursuit of you is like but he's not going to cease pursuing you. He will do good to you. He will show you mercy, all based on his own promise to himself and his commitment to his own name. I mean, even Israel's worst failure, the cherry on top of all their other failures, where they just said, we demand a different way to be led. Those were not enough to thwart God's faithfulness. In fact, that very sin that they committed in asking for a king is what God used to deliver them out of all of their sins. 
which means no matter what you've done or what you think has discounted, you know, God's mercy towards you or his goodness or surely has somehow outstripped his grace, God can even use our worst sins to be that which continues to save and to sanctify us because he will not stop until he brings you to glory. The sin of asking for a king is the very sin that led to that king dying for you and I, and that king even now ever living to make intercession for us. He will not cease to pray for you, which means that your failures aren't enough to undo the goodness of God. And while your evil may be great, his grace is far greater. And that is why you should turn from your sin. I mean, that is why you should stop chasing all of these other saviors. That is why all of those things that you think will give you meaning, uh, that, will, that will bring you the sort of prosperity you're desiring, that will somehow give you an identity, all those things that you think this will make me happy, they should be set aside because God has shown you how good he is, that his desire for you is good, which means his ways are always right and holy and good and are for your benefit. And you can trust that because there he is, displayed in his righteousness on the cross. Good news for sinners, that God will stop at nothing to save and sanctify his people. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, let's pray.